Um, so we heard, most of us heard Bob Bella's uh, presentation yesterday, and he talked about how there's been a spike in anti-Semitism recently in Turkey, and how how we can attribute this um, to internal and external factors. Um, and I think my basic assessment of the situation is that the factors that I would attribute to the great increase in the amount of anti-Semitism is probably the media frames. And for those of you who are familiar with um, framing, it's a so social science theory that talks about how things are interpreted and how they're portrayed. So I would say that the use of the media and the interpretation that they um, put forth in the recent Gaza invasion is a big factor in um, making people um, get out on the streets and protest. And some of you have probably seen the pictures of the protests in 2009 on the streets and hundreds of thousands of people in some cases some estimates, almost a million people in some cities in Turkey were out there protesting. And when I saw some of the pictures, I was thinking I was looking at some, an Arab country, and I didn't even recognize Turkey. I mean, you see Palestinian flags everywhere, and um, those their, their scars, and, and it was just unbelievable. So I attribute also the growth of the civil society organizations in Turkey within the last 10 years, and these are Islamist society organizations that have effectively mobilized a great percentage of women because most of these organizations were created under the precepts of giving women with a headscarf the right to you know, go to university or not be discriminated against. So once these organizations were created, there was an easy um, base and an easy way to mobilize these women and their families um, to become anti-Semitic, and you'll see the protests, and if you look at the pictures on the internet, um, and you go to the websites, they sound like they're human rights organizations or they're working for a particular cause, but when it comes right down to it, I mean, they're just ways to further anti-Semitic behavior. So I think that there's a little, not very much attention has been given to these, um, Islamic civil society organizations, but I think they're a big way to um, mobilize at the grassroots level. I mean, most people look at, you know, what's going on with the politicians, and of course, Erdogan and his AKP party are a very important factor in all of this as well, but it doesn't get down to what's explaining what's going on on the street. So, I chose this topic because I was interested in media and how they portray anti-Semitism and political cartoons is just a part of this, obviously. Um, television and newspapers and other um, media outlets have a very important role in um, pushing an anti-Semitic message in Turkey. So I won't bore you with the details of the literature, but just to point out some facts about what um, are the debates around the political cartoons and the analysis of them in the academy. Many political scientists and other um, scholars um, point at the importance of political cartoons, but they say that there isn't enough attention given to them because they don't exactly fit neatly into any one particular discipline. So since it's sort of an interdisciplinary um, way of looking at things, that's why it's not studied very well. But as we all know, political cartoons have 
resonate very widely among the public. You know, they've led to murders and riots and um, various other problems. And so yesterday, newspaper, it's one of the most um, radical Islamist newspapers in Turkey. And if you have an article about yourself published in that newspaper, you know, and you're not a radical Islamist, obviously you have to fear for your life. So it's serious business when, you know, someone from a secular Turk is um, described or there's an article written about him or her in a newspaper. And some of the cartoons that I'll be showing come from that newspaper. And I would say that they are the more virulently anti-Semitic cartoons as opposed to more of the mainstream newspapers. So let's get started. So there's three major incidents that created this kind of outpouring of anti-Semitic uh, rhetoric and cartoons and everything else in the media. So the Gaza situation in 2009, uh, and that I think created the, the greatest um, magnitude of cartoons that's available in the press. Um, the second incident was Ireland and Chicago, and that happened uh, in January of 2010. Um, it, was, it was just a diplomatic incident. I don't know if any of you are familiar with it, but um, in Israel, um, Danny Ayalon invited to Gold, who had just started um, his post as the Turkish ambassador to Israel three months before. And he said, Well, we're going to talk and meet about and see what we can talk about. And um, the conversation turned into a debate about um, this television program in Turkey that had shown some anti Semitic images. So when they were talking about it, at the end of the um, conversation, I guess Ayalon said something in Hebrew to the cameraman that Sheikhul didn't understand, but later it was translated in Haaretz that he said something like, notice the low um, chair, notice that I'm not smiling, and notice that there's no Turkish flag on the desk. So later on, the Turks said, oh, how could they put our you know, ambassador on a chair that was lower? So, I mean, in all actuality, even if the chairs were equal, the guy is so tiny that he would look, you know, so small next to the other guy. Anyways, but that's neither here nor there. But this turned into another incident on all kinds of cartoons published about with chairs, and Ireland was then later eating a chair. And so anyway, okay. And then the last, most recent incident is the Marble Marma flotilla. And when this incident happened, I was actually in Tajikistan, but I was. Um, kind of tracking what was going on on Facebook and my friends who had never ever said anything anti-Semitic in their lives in Turkey were now posting anti-Semitic you know, articles online and saying how could Israel do this. So I basically thought, well, Turkish-Israeli relations, that's probably the end of them. So then when I went to Turkey a couple days after this incident, I was probably there in July 1st or 2nd, something like that. I was just talking to random people around what they thought about it, and some of them were saying, oh, we're glad someone's Islamists got killed, you know, that, you know, less trouble for us. So it wasn't as serious as I thought when I was around there, like people weren't taking it seriously. Um, and several days after that, there was kind of a diversion because there were some soldiers killed in the east of Turkey by the PKK, so kind of the media shifted its attention to what was going on there. But it was an effective way for the I guess the secular Turks to kind of blame the whole incident on the AKP, and there's a cartoon sort of going into that that I'm going to show you there. <coughs> okay, 
So these are some of the earlier images coming out from the Gaza incident. And as you can see from the first one, I guess there wouldn't be too much to say like who's attributing blame, but you could just say that there's violence and there's a problem in Gaza. Um, then by the one on the right, it's clearly um, blaming Israel for all the problems. Um, the caption on the bottom says um, the ceasefire has been established. The one on the right side is the same thing before, it just says that it was published in this. So one of the media frames that I talked about in my paper is um, one like that they use with, with based upon children. So we see a lot of cartoons that revolve around um, children being, you know, tortured, killed, or their parents being taken away. And this was also reflected in a lot of television broadcasts in Turkey at the time. And still, while I was even there, they were showing Palestinian children crying over their um, parents being uh, imprisoned. And so here we see the Grim Reaper, uh, the child is hiding in the um, robe of the Grim Reaper while his presumably father is being um, shot by the troops. Okay, now this one um, I came across, I used newspaper sources as well as this website called IranCartoon.com where it's a kind of international um, collection of cartoons that have been submitted through this website or have been in competitions uh, worldwide. And a lot of these have actually circulated more widely on the internet as opposed to the ones in the newspapers. So when I first saw this, I couldn't decide whether it was Freddy Krueger or Dracula. Um, but then when I went to save the file, clearly said Dracula there. So as you can see on his sleeve there, he has a small star of David. And shape of the knife is obviously Gaza. So he's Gaza. <clears throat> okay, so this one is supposedly celebrating the one year anniversary of the Gaza invasion. That's what it says in the Gaza massacre anniversary on the left. And the soldier is saying, um, happy birthday, come on, blow it out. And Perez is replying with, if I blow it out, if the fire will go out, let it completely burn, and then I'll blow it out later. So again, it's almost going along with the blood libels of the Therian, drinking the blood of the children, and taking um, along those kinds. And another interesting thing that comes out in the cartoons is linking the US with Israel. In some of the cartoons, it's obvious that the um, artist wants to give the interpretation that the U.S. is controlling Israel, but in others, you really can't tell like, what's going on. So here we have the U.S. and Abed is the abbreviation for USA in Turkish, and he's, whoever it is is holding a fly swatter in the shape of the Star of David and swatting out the Palestinians. So another obvious immediate frame is that the Palestinian is you know, um, helpless and he's not doing anything and he's just being um, broken down by the evil Israelis. Okay, so this is one of the cartoons from Bucky the Radical Islamist Federation. Um, so we have a doctor with a head that's a globe that's supposed to be like a world opinion, and he's saying, um, You don't even have humanity in you, you 
to it, you don't even have, you're not even like an animal. So, and he's showing him the x-ray, obviously, of whatever he is. And, um, so he's basically saying, you know, you're not even better, you're worse than an animal. And in Turkish, that's kind of a really, really bad insult. <coughs> Okay, here's another one of the cartoons that plays upon the imagery of children. And this um, artist chose a little girl, which is a little bit less common. Most of the time you see little boys being killed. Uh, but this is the little girl jump roping, and that's her soul going up to heaven, and um, the soldier is watching. Okay, this is playing upon. Uh, cartoon website was submitted as part of the competition. Um, so, I mean, you can see that the hands are just giant and kind of like an over or something like that. And it's just playing upon the emotions of the audience. Okay, here we have another cartoon linking Israel and the U.S. So, um, the U.S. along with Israel is feeding dollars into the ground or to
Okay, and some of the cartoons, actually, it's sort of rare that they depict actual people in the cartoons. I mean, I guess that maybe because the Turkish Republic is not exactly familiar with um, Israeli politicians, but I found a couple that had some actual people in there. There it says, um, the Israeli chief of staff, Rabbi um, Ashkenazi, is in Ankara. So he's sitting in Ankara, and you can see everyone's horrified and just terribly afraid. Another one from the kids. And you can see that Israel is depicted as just yeah, a terrible cowboy kind of. I saw a lot of cartoons like where Israelis look like cowboys. I guess in the Turkish culture, cowboys are considered like wild and unruly. Okay, here's another one where the Israeli soldiers drinking the blood of the dragon that looks shaped like Gaza. And this is another type of humanitarian aid. They're saying that they need to send Israel kindness and humanity and um, like law and um, justice. This is from Bakit the Radicals on newspaper. So Jews are being compared to sharks. This one circulated pretty widely on the internet. It shows a Palestinian mother with a child who has a rock in his hand ready to throw the rock while she's being gunned down with the firing squad. This came from a magazine called Economics, and it's generally supposed to be about you know, economic topics. And the caption says, um, Israel is continuing to drink blood. So you can see the blue flag there is. Okay, this one is interesting because it's supposed to be Netanyahu's um, Ten Commandments. You're not going to help anyone, you're going to attack everyone, you're going to kill everyone, you're going to murder them, you're going to make them suffer, you're going to covet your neighbor's land, you're going to steal, you're going to trick, um, you're going to do like your work by trickery. Okay, so this is the chair incident, and that's how it's been reflected in the media. So the first there were several of those cartoons with the skulls kind of calling up the Holocaust imagery. Um, the bottom one, the chair says, I don't want any problems with Turkey. I'm um, regretful. The one on the right says, the guy enters in the room and says, the Israeli ambassador is here. And Shady Cole, who is the, um, the Turkish-Israeli ambassador, says, let him wait one minute while he's signing off. Okay, this is a depiction kind of of what technically what happened, but the chair is gigantic with the Israeli flag and Ilan is sitting there while Jake Gold was sitting on a stool and he's gigantic, which actually the opposite. And then Ilan there on the top is um, saying, good thing that the chair's legs were short while he's having to eat it. Um, this one is a segue kind of into the Mabu Marmar incident. Um, there's Netanyahu sitting on the little boat there, and it says at the bottom, the low chair um, revenge. Okay, so here are some of the images from the latest incident. Um, so the two men on the ship are saying, I thought that our um, load was humanitarian aid, wasn't it? What was their problem? And so then um, his last word is, 
I guess that they have no relationship with humanity or they're not humans. And the soldier at the bottom saying, how would you raise your hands at me while he shoots them? Um, the one on the top, the two Israeli soldiers are talking amongst themselves and saying, I think we're going to win this war. And the other one says, maybe, but we definitely lost the visual war. And the one on the right is kind of turning around the size imagery of the previous one, and he says attack, and it's just a little tiny paper boat there. And the one on the left is just blood dripping out of the bullet holes. And the one on the right, I'm almost done, um, is the secular Turks' attempt to blame the Mamimara incident on the AKP. So the side on the left says, the people getting off before the voyage starts, and the side on the right says those who got off after the voyage. So we have coffins on the right side, and the AKP after they orchestrated the whole situation, they're getting off before the boat takes off. Of today's anti-Semitism in European society. 
because of its representation of the Arab-Israeli conflict. And the majority of opinions underline the media liability for depicting the state of Israel as a collective Jew, thus providing a convenient channel for the outpouring of prejudices and sometimes hatred against the Jews in general. Yet the issue is controversial, and opinions, as formulated during the last decades debate, diverge on the main question of whether and when anti Zionist contents or criticism of Israel turn into anti Semitic discourse. The main tendency when analyzing the media discourse on Israel is to trace back and expose the common roots between past anti Semitic stereotypes and today's representation of Israel. This paper argues that although based on utterly negative features, yet the image of Israel and of the Israeli conveyed by the press at the time did not belong to a classic anti-Semitic discourse or traditional anti-Semitic discourse. Although not entirely disconnected from past anti-Semitic representation, the block libel of course, um, and uh, was one of the main um, uh, pattern of the Nevertheless, this feature, the features of the image of Israel, generated an image specifically belonging to the Israelis, conveying a new set of stereotypes about them. At the same time, by conveying a new perception of the role of the Jewish community, communities from the diaspora vis-à-vis -vis Israel, the press indeed represented Israel as the collective Jew. However, the diaspora Jews were compared to the image of the Israelis, that is, diaspora Jews were observed through the lens of the new representation of Israel rather than vice versa. Um, so, about the military operation which started after the assassination of Shishimayan. With the exception of the Guardian, the press interpreted the Israeli military operation in West Beirut denying any tactical or strategic purpose to Israel. Accordingly, the military intervention was explained by the emotion driving Israeli leadership, particularly uh, Prime Minister Reagan and Defense Minister Sharon at the time. And newspapers spoke of their dreams, desires, and ambition. Um, the interpretation of the operation as originating in irrational impulses was bolstered by the by the approach the newspapers adopted towards the military events. News articles describing those events on, on extremely general terms, often through a highly metaphorical language, and they superficially reported, for instance, uh, and I quote uh, from some of those articles, gunfire and shooting, tanks progressing with confidence slowness, Combat aircraft flying low over the city, forces tightening the grip against residential areas of West Beirut, unspecified residential area of Beirut. Moreover, the newspaper's correspondence and special envoys suggested that the action was directed against civilians, instead, as it was against uh, armed militiamen, which uh, stayed in Beirut after the evacuation of the leadership the previous month. For instance, 
Le Monde reported the news on a broad report by the special envoy in Beirut in Kushan as follows. Let fierce missile awake the city and soon they throw people into shelters. They grip titans on all sides and just before eight the salt is launched. Tanks and commandos come up from the sea and cars rush towards a shelter. Women run, a baby in their arms, towards the nearest shelter. Men follow them, playing bread and water. There's no reference to uh, any action conducted against armed militiamen in this broad report which appeared on the the most first, first page. And uh, uh, only the Guardian gave a different account. It was the only newspaper to report the sequence of events as well as the way the attack was conducted, together with the indication that the operation had taken place in an area which was the stronghold of Palestinian militias. The newspaper's account therefore proves that the information about what was going on was in fact available and that through this information events could be accounted for in a more comprehensive way than the, how they were described by uh, the other newspapers. The alarming Lebanese situation took a dramatic downturn with the massacres in uh, the very Palestinian refugees camp. And from September the 19th, news of the massacres made top headlines in the newspapers. News related to these events monopolized the front pages of all newspapers during the following week. The first accounts in the press focused on Israel's role in the massacres, also highlighted in headlines and leads. In fact, whilst rapidly reporting that material executioners of the massacres were confusedly identified by survivors as belonging either to the Palestinian militia, the militia commanded by the Nevertheless, the newspaper's leading article assigned a major responsibility to the Israeli government, 
although it did not accuse the Israeli leaders of declining the massacres. Similarly, in leading articles and opinions, the British newspapers accredited the thesis of Israel's indirect responsibility for having failed to stop the massacres and for being somehow involved with the alleged killers at the military and political level. Two in-depth documentary reports, which appeared on the newspapers when, when more information had been gathered, focused exclusively on Israel's role, aiming at establishing what the position and the involvement of the Israeli troops was, as well as the degree of government's responsibility that could be inferred from available information and official declarations goes out to uh, by uh, Minister Sharon at the Knesset that Falange's militias had carried out the massacres, which was corroborated by evidence gathered by Israeli journalists in Lebanon at the same time, was either completely ignored or explicitly denied as fraudulent by the press. The Guardian was the only newspaper having pointed to the Maronite militia chief, Elias Khomeika, as indicated by Sharon, as the author of the massacre. It was also the only newspaper having explored the consequences and tale for Lebanon. This even after um, uh, Bashir Shemaya's brother, Amin, was elected at the Lebanese presidency. The Maronite, Amin Shemaya. The press also ignored the motivations behind the militia's action. They never inquired it. On the contrary, it is really purposes in organizing or allowing massacres were discussed in depth. All newspapers considered that one of the reasons behind the massacres was, as Larry put it, the intention of the Israeli to disperse the refugees in order to prevent national and cultural unity, which could favor information of our groups. This comment clearly assumes a political and strategic motivation to Israel's involvement in the massacres, although a brutal one. It is the only version presented by the Guardian. However, this interpretation was marginal, and the massacres were more often interpreted as arriving from Israeli leaders' willingness to annihilate Palestinians, a desire belonging to the rational sphere, beyond any political or military rationale. The Italian newspapers and Le Monde um, assigned uh, the massacre responsibility to Israel, <coughs> suggesting in a comparison to World War II, that the Israelis were in fact animated by a desire of extermination similar to the one once suffered by the Jews during that period. The Republica held that the Jewish people had undergone a process of mutation in Israel by introducing, introducing the idea of the Israeli disease as the key to interpret events. This uh, issue of Israeli disease appears in
grow. What is going on in the heart, in the mind, in the feelings of those who are called with Levi or Seger, of those who have the name of the city, and are linked heart and soul to the people of the Exodus? We ask intellectuals, writers, common people who are experiencing, once again, the nightmare of the uncertainty, uncertainty and of the biblical curse, because of a now generalized condemnation, because of what we have been so, in conclusion, from the analysis of the newspapers covered of the Lebanese events, three main issues emerge about the image of Israel as conveyed by the press. First of all, all newspapers tended to detach Israel from the surrounding historical and political context, which mainly appeared as a stage on which Israeli operated. In other words, the actions of the Israeli received prominent or exclusive attention. When mentioned in the press, the various Lebanese groups were simply leveled under general political and terms. The left wing, the Maronite, the Palestinians, without any information on their political positions or, or ambitions. The press adopted a similar aphasic representation towards the Palestinians when they were uh, actually victims. Uh, this emerged in the accounts of the military operation in West Beirut in an abstract manner as potential targets of the Israelis. Conversely, the reports about the massacres that appeared either as unburied corpses, a small group of survivors, more often groups of women, mourning for what had happened. On this occasion, the press did not show any interest in their emotional individuality, nor as was the case with the Lebanese factions, in their political specificity. Instead, they were represented as symbolic victims of the Israeli misdeeds. Secondly, concerning the way the press portrayed Israeli, the analysis revealed Jews were observed, that 
gratitude. Um, 
a defensive commemoration in English. We say it's the right term for Edmonds up there. So it's it's the pushing away of memory of like the memory of the Shoah. That's like one main strand. And the other main strand is anti-Israelism. Um, not very surprisingly, there is anti-Semitism among the German population. So um, approximately 25 to 50 um, percent of the population, depending on the service, service criteria, hold anti-Semitic um, views. So it is a phenomenon in the midst of society. It's a mainstream phenomenon. Um, yet public opinion usually delegitimizes anti-Semitism very quickly. It scandalizes it and marks it, marks it as legitimate. So due to its past and with regard to international relations, in Germany, um, official policy has to condemn anti-Semitism. So there is this gap between public and private opinion, and um, anti-Semitism is widely common, but not really directly pr present in mass media. So uh, it's common forms. So um, I'm looking at a persisting discourse. That means I'm looking at something that has continuity and a discontinuity. It, it, it is continuous and it's being there and um, being there being a, a certain tradition of images, um, but they're not represented directly in the media. So um, it's coded in a certain ways. Um, yeah. So anti-Semitism in Germany, um, to summarize some of the presuppositions, is there's a tension between public and private opinion. There's a new nationalism um, since 1989, since the so-called reunion, um, that has effects on anti-Semitism as well. And um, we have the official politics of memory on one side, and on the other side there's this latent secondary anti-Semitism and this latent common anti-Israelism. So the question I'm posing in my research is, um, what is the imagery of anti-Semitism today? Like, in what forms does it, uh, is it represented? tricky question, of course, because, um, like I said, it's of, of course not like before 19, <coughs> 1945 that it's these very direct, very ugly pictures. But of course it's there. So um, that's where film as the daydreams of society, as the Karpov called it, um, comes into play. Because I want to argue that to take into account this tension between public and private opinion um, means that um, looking at film can, can be very fruitful um, because it's power to enable identification and to emotionalize, um, to find affection together with it being a mass medium that's distributed, well, at least nationwide, um, even globally, and not least the very special power of images as opposed to language makes film a very important instrument of propaganda and um, an object for revealing wire, I guess. Okay. Um, let me emphasize two points here. First, anti-Semitism in Germany is usually quickly scandalized because there is some evidence that the climate has changed following the so-called reunion, like I said. And um, second, this assessment only goes true for the traditional forms of anti-Semitism, but not for the, the younger resentments, as can be seen um, in the debates following the Flotilla and um, stuff like that. So, what are we looking for when we want to analyze present anti-Semitism in Germany. Um, well, to summarize roughly the scope of my project, before I'm going to just, just 
Um, I'm looking at roughly 40 films, um, all fictional. They're all produced with German money at this um, lift, so um, some of them are co-funded. Um, and they're all either on, on the topic of national socialism or on the topic of Israel. And um, in addition to this thematic limitation project, like I said, only investigates fictional from both um, TV and cinema. Um, why is that? Well, fictional film is, like I said, um, it has special features that, that make the functional analysis maybe it's, it's potential to um, identify. Um, but we have time, right? Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, so I'm going to tell you a little about um, this, this bunch of films that you're looking at, um, because it's a phenomenon in itself. Um, in the aftermath of, of the political transformation of Germany since 1989, there has been a striking surge of German or German co-funded films depicting National Socialism since approximately 2001. Um, the first actually was Stalingrad by Joseph Kistmeyer that showed the suffering of German soldiers. It was actually made in 1997. Um, it's a victimizing narrative. But the real mass of films started out to, to come out in, um, from 2001. So up to now there's about 36 films produced for cinema and five so-called event movies. Um, that were produced by um, using public funds. They were very, very heavily financed. Uh, um, <coughs> let me pre-anticipate my results so far and tell you that most of these films are um, produced in the genre of drama, and most of them depict Germans as victims, Germans, non-Jewish Germans as victims, and most of them do not show the Holocaust at all. So that's a phenomenon in itself, a victimization discourse in German film. So um, this way of filming narratives can be interpreted as a cultural reaction to political changes. And regarding this phenomenon, um, when asking what forms anti-Semitic discourse takes on, um, well, I'm just using roughly one main category, and category that forms the core of anti-Semitism, which is the exchange of roles of victim and perpetrator. So um, that's mainly what has been. My results are, um, on one hand, on the left hand, there's an updating of classic old anti-Semitic motives, like vengefulness, um, poisoning of walls, and treachery, or dehumanization. And then there's a couple of new motives that are particularly interesting, because, like I said, that's the question. Um, like, what, what's happening with anti-Semitic discourse today? Mm. One of it is, like I said, the victimization of non-Jewish Germans by what I call idolatric ministers. I'm going to explain that. Um, also, the externalization of national socialism. Um, so it doesn't have to do anything with non Germans. And um, a phenomenon I would call structural antisemitism. That means um, that characters are um, <coughs> figures are characterized along, alongside um, binary codes that are um, structured by antisemitic patterns, let's say, even some arbitrators. Okay, um, I'm going to show you some examples of what I mean by idolatric analysis. Um, I've, I've coined this term to, what well, to name this phenomenon, which is mainly an adaptation to an image that's quite idolatric. It's the adaptation to an image. That is the image of uh, Jewish victims of the Holocaust. Um, 
everybody knows from the media, and is transported into um, home victim narratives of Jewish parents, and now it shows up in, in cultural artifacts. So this is a shift of um, certain images um, that updates the visual stereotypes. Let me show you one. Um, and the movie Dico's Club, um, I think the movie is called Ship of No Return, from 2008. Um, I think it was financed with 12 million euros, um, shown at best um, front time. <coughs> and what you see here, here is actually not Jewish victims in a concentration camp, but it's Germans trying to enter um, the harbor to get on ship. So, um, I mean, this is quite obvious. Looks like concentration camp, right? And, um, I'm not going to have time to show you the, the film, but so I'm just using screenshots. Excuse me, now. just um, to get an idea. Um, these these um, what do you call it? pencils they use they actually like um, real um, historical concentration camp pencils. So um, what I'm not looking at is this authentic or not. I'm just um, trying to find out what kind of pictures circulate. And this is definitely an interesting phenomenon. So in the movie Dresden, about the bombing of the, the German city in 1945, um, you can see it very well But it's um, the protagonist, Anna, a nurse, and she's wearing this red dress and walking around in the spray um, debris ruins of Dresden. And obviously, this is what you can see there. But it, it just looks like the little girl in her dress, and she was this. So that's what I mean. It's like um, it's it's connecting to imagery everybody knows, to all kinds of imagery everybody knows, and it's very subtle. See, so this is a victimization of non-Jewish Germans. Um, I call idolatric mimesis. Another case of idolatric mimesis in Dresden is. Um, bodies she walks by. And they don't tell you in the movie that it's mainly um, Jewish people and forced labor workers that were burned in that because they couldn't enter the, the secure shelters. So um, in the movie, it looks like it's Germans, not Jewish Germans that were like that. In fact, it's, it's the real victims. But it's a way of victimization visually that's very subtle because um, the image is authentic, but it's decontextualized. Don't get to hear about true historic context. You just see the images, and it's dramatic, and you hear the music, and it just works. Okay, so that's idolatric images. And then what I find is um, that usually in the, those movies, and the good and the bad victim and perpetrator, or the hero and the bad guys, they are usually characterized alongside an anti structure. On the left, you see the hearing or and on the right is the bad guy. Actually, interestingly, um, there's two, two truly fictitious figures in the movie that's, apart from that, it's pretty doc documentary, but it's um, very close to historic facts. But um, this guy on the right, and that was just invented to, to give a reason for why the ship um, sang, why the ship been torpedoed by the Russians. In, in reality, um, nobody knows why it could, why it could have been. But why it was possible to be, to be torpedoed. So um, 
um, this character is actually, it's not openly Jewish, but it's characterized as being, um, he doesn't want to work, he's very lazy. He's natural and at the same time impotent, and he's the traitor figure. So we have this dichotomy of this um, heroine who wants to sacrifice herself for the community, the blonde, um, she's actually working in the military, um, but she's, she's the heroine, and like I said, she wants to sacrifice herself, and that's a very common motive in, in um, Nazi ideology, as well as in those films, people um, go to martyrdom, people who sacrifice themselves. And the bad people, um, well, they're being characterized alongside uh, a certain combination of anti-Semitic stereotypes, so that's what I would call structural Leipzig, um, and it shows Romania, the Aryan woman, being raped by um, Why do they show them like that? 
It's, it's just, I think it's a, it's an update of a certain way of dehumanizing. And we only know that you're studying the star, which doesn't really make sense because they were hiding when we were in the star. And coming to an end. Uh, last, very last um, example um, of anti-Israelism. Um, again, victims of perpetrators compared us now. Um, also, German book and movie, German script. Um, on the left, you see the victims or heroes of the movie. They're all kind of European, slightly like um, Palestinians. Um, women smoking guys want to blow up themselves because they don't know what else to do. But on the right, there's the bad guys. <laughs> it's the, the Israelis. And we don't get to know them. We don't get to see, really see their faces or see who they are. Um, they're dehumanized and they're only shown as role model perpetrators. So that's an example of an anti-Israel strand in uh, contemporary American <laughs> contemporary German film. So, um, okay, this might not be as hateful and as um, direct as all the other stuff, but it's Germany, so it can be. So um, I just want to end by saying, film um, shapes reality. And um, even if the connection of antisemitism in film is not as clear and direct as in Yudzu's, um, still it provides visual material for notions of reality and for notions about other people, and I think it's still um, very important to watch out that those are accurate. Rarely has genocide been put to the service of so much 
unabashed entertainment. I'd like to explore what difference popular mass audience Holocaust movies makes to our thinking about the limits of Holocaust representation in relation to critical discourses on anti-Semitic imagery. Holocaust films may win reverent applause on Oscar night and hushed audience approval, but it is precisely because of this that they have become suspect. A January 2010 New York Times article noted that it may not have been a coincidence that with Hanukkah having just been celebrated and Holocaust Memorial Day coming up, a spate of Holocaust movies opened within the month, including Defiance, The Reader, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, and Valkyrie. This response begs the questions of whether the problem is too much Holocaust or what messages about the Jews and Jewish Holocaust are being represented. After all, European surveys show growing irritation at the perceived guilt trip being perpetuated by endless stories of Jewish victimization. In the light of this backlash, is it possible that even as recent films show increasingly complex approaches to Holocaust stories, including Nazi horror, that some express resistance to universal moral responsibility for the fate of the Jews. From the critical perspective of genre and audience appeal, several of these movies question their own serious engagement with the implications of such questions by shaping their narratives with features of pop culture melodrama. Their plot and action driven, emphasizing suspense and the romantic low intentions of heroic adventure and adventurous love. They mystify horror rather than explore it. For many critics, such stories leave audiences understanding the Holocaust story as a chilling but satisfying thriller, starring heroically handsome Jews and carrying the message of the triumph of hope over adversity, of individual agency over totalitarianism, of innocence over evil. The problem is that such lessons and moral pieties betray how exceptional these stories are. They betray the realities of six million terrorized Jews and an additional five million others who never had a chance to resist or to be rescued. Even if it's just a plot ploy, the effect of glamorizing, sentimentalizing, and eroticizing Holocaust representation is to trivialize not only the atrocities, but the fact that the Jewish victims were constructed as a race to destroy. To dismiss and therefore obscure the centrality of this fact certainly contributes to the accessibility of Holocaust stories by creating a universalizing portrait with which audiences can easily identify. But of course, this would ignore the particularities of Jewish identity, culture, and history as targets of destruction and erasure. The implications of such suppositions are highlighted by the fate of darker Holocaust stories, those that depict the repellent 
an unadventurous trajectory of despair, death, and disillusionment because those usually appear to limited audiences due to short runs in art houses. Such is the case of Faithlessness, the film adaptation of Nobel Prize winner Imre Kertes' autobiographical novel, which in shades of gray and taupe depicts the unrelenting mud, roll calls, and backbreaking work of a 15-year-old Hungarian Jewish boy surviving several camps with neither will nor while and returning to face loss and a bleak, uncertain future. As both the Caritas novel and film demonstrate, as opposed to popular filmmakers, Holocaust survivor artists struggle to find the language and forms through which to bear witness to their experiences. In short, to even achieve accessibility. The problem, as survivor artists tell us, is that no written, visual, or spoken language or conventional genre can convey a clear, concise picture of the unprecedented, unimaginable horrors of the camps. As French political prisoner Charlotte Delvo pleads with her readers, try and look, just try and see. She doesn't say, come and look, here it is, big as life and twice as real for you to ponder. No, she knows better. My case study today will be the most recent example of popular acclaim for a Holocaust story. John Boyne's 2006 novel, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, and the 2008 film adaptation. Boyne calls his novel a fable a simple tale with an agreeably accessible moral lesson. Here's the plot. Having been promoted to camp commandant, an SS officer moves his wife, eight-year-old son Bruno, and 12-year-old daughter Gretel from their graciously traditional Berlin home to a modernist, no-frills house bordering the gates of Auschwitz. Denoting his innocent ignorance and endearing him to audiences with his baby talk, Bruno calls the camp out with and their leader, the Fury. Deprived of school and friends, both children are beset with loneliness, but the perspective is Bruno's. One day, as fables will have it, Bruno discovers a door at the back of their garden and wanders along the perimeter of the barbed wire fence to discover on the other side, Shmuel, a Jewish boy in striped pajamas. Among Bruno's many discoveries as he engages Shmuel in friendly conversation through the fence is that they share the same birthday and sadness about leaving their nice homes and friends behind. As the boy's friendship intensifies, so does the momentum of the plot, which carries them inexorably along to their shared tragic end. Discovering no difference between the boys and their fates, both the plot and Bruno make sure he digs a hole under the fence, dons a pair of borrowed striped pajamas, and the boys are swept away along with the other male prisoners hand in hand to the gas chamber. 
The ad for the film features the subtitle, Lines May Divide Us, But Hope Will Unite Us. The website for the film has a discussion guide featuring a page of objectives for youth, including the following, the essence of true friendship, the courage to engage in humane activities, the uses and abuses of obedience and conformity, the development and consequences of prejudice and discrimination. Note the universal message in these objectives, clearly well-intended, and I'm thinking here now of David Hirsch's talk this morning about intentionality. Clearly well-intended, one that appeals to young and old alike and to the best sense of ourselves. After the preponderance of victim stories in other venues, we now have a chance to understand the perpetrator as human, not a monster, not sick, not an abstract symbol of evil. We are shown a Nazi family that except for father's SS uniform, we recognize as ordinary, educated, upper middle class and trying to maintain a semblance of normalcy in a time of war. Sibling rivalry, marital tensions, loss of home and friends. Creating an interesting equivalency, this theme is not unlike the story that Anne Frank tells about her family. So I ask, is this a problem? And how do I identify it and analyze it? As with Anne's story, history interferes with the fantasy that innocence triumphs over evil. First, Bruno and Schmuel could never meet on opposite sides of the fence. Schmuel would more likely have been one of the 1.5 million Jewish children murdered along with his mother for representing the poisonous regeneration of the Jewish people. The fence would have been electrified and guarded by attack dogs and their SS leaders. But it's what the film does show, despite its good intentions about equality under the skin, that hints at the fable's complicity with racial ideology. In the film, Shmuel has a shaved head and broken and missing teeth. Because he is never shown as normal or healthy, audiences have no way of knowing that he was ever any other way. Neither movie nor novel indicates in realist, symbolist, or other figurative language that his abject appearance is a result of being a victim of starvation and beatings and not a race apart. Except for one scene where he's shown with a black eye as a result of being hit by a young and SS officer, we only see him in the fence, surrounded by an antiseptically clean field. No other prisoners, no mud, no filth, no ashes. Bruno has big blue eyes and a winning smile. He's a beautiful and charming child. His entire family is beautiful and fit. Until the end, when they are overcome with grief, their appearance is idealized throughout the film. They are the master race. Unlike the portrait of Shmuel, a static character who nothing seems to affect, the film focuses on the dramatic change that befalls Bruno's family. 
While the novel and moving race inexorably towards their climactic end with rapid intercuts between the boys being catapulted towards the gas chambers and the frantic search for Bruno, there is no narrative expression of loss on behalf of the Jews. By contrast, the film's coda dwells on Bruno's family. A shot from above hovers over Elsa sinking to her knees at the sight of Bruno's clothing and wailing in pain. As the camera cuts, and I don't have a shot of this, to the commandant's panicked and grief-stricken face, it exhorts the audience to empathize with his moral and emotional epiphany. Through the mother's abject grief and father's panic, we are made to view the Nazi family as suffering a human tragedy. Author John Boyne and director Mark Harmon have succeeded in making the Holocaust accessible to all and out of its history created a perspective that universalizes the Nazi family as another human interest story worthy of audiences identification and acceptance into the realm of our moral and emotional norms. At the same time as the sympathetic Nazi perspective is stretching the limits of Holocaust representation, the classic perspective is being transformed. Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. Anybody here seen it? Okay, good. Cast Jewish survivors as autistic avenging devils whose assassination of Nazi perpetrators is depicted as rivaling Nazi methods in its savagery. Not satisfied with clubbing Nazi guards and officers to death, the Jewish Avengers offer their own imprimatur. They scalp their victims. As with much of the film's narrative ploys, this gesture pays homage to classic Hollywood filmmaking, in this case, the cowboy and Indian epic. But of course, what's happening in Tarantino's revision is that the lawlessness of the American West is transported to the European West, where the reference to the savage Indian overwhelms any sense of Jewish victimization or righteous resistance and becomes the signifier of Jewish justice. The anti-Semitic stereotype of the Jewish scalper, i.e. pawnbroker, so forth, is reborn as we watch him literally take his pound of flesh while his autistic grunts subsume centuries of Jewish literacy, commentary, and debate. Because the subject of Holocaust representation must be in comprehensible horror, making its stories accessible through familiar emotional registers, narrative forms, and images continues to be an educational imperative. Museums, memoirs, and Holocaust children's books provide guides that create a coherent narrative to lead audiences through historical events and human suffering. Most popular Holocaust films create even greater accessibility. Advertised as heartwarming tributes to the triumph of love, heroism, and self-sacrifice, they are most often about atypical stories of survival that universalize the subject and erase the ongoing trauma of Jewish victimization and anti-Semitism. I'd like to argue that the problem for popular Holocaust films 
is how they contribute to a mythically comforting public memory of the event. Tarantino presents us with a Holocaust story that blends seamlessly with audience memories, not of Holocaust history, but of Tarantino's earlier films. As reviews show, audiences responded to Inglourious Bastards as though it were Pulp Fiction meeting Kill Bill, a slapstick send-up of both historical investigation and uplifting fiction. Inglourious Bastards uses Holocaust history and testimony as a graphic opportunity for the postmodern filmmaker. It mocks an assumed ethical responsibility to historical documentation and authenticity as shop-worn academic cliché by celebrating travesty as an authentic form of Holocaust art. In so doing, the film overturns the historical and moral opposition between Jewish victimization and Nazi perpetration as well as the testimonial value of any Holocaust representation. Indeed, having worn out their welcome as passive victims, Jews are now artistic candidates for acceptability. They can gratify audiences' thirst for vicarious, violent fun by fulfilling the anti-Semitic stereotype working under the cover of parody. Considered together, both films remind us how Holocaust representation situates artist and audience as collaborators in addressing questions about the responsibility of collective Holocaust memory that have not been resolved and perhaps cannot be. It is in this sense that Holocaust movies must defy the promises of escapist fantasy. Its stories can entice mass audiences to endure the journey, but along the way, those promises must be.